Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Hello, Alexa here, and my guest today is the director of the Voice Study Centre and creator of popular Facebook group Voice Geek. Three of her peer-reviewed articles have been published and she partnered with various leaders and the University of Wales Trinity St David to establish a training pathway in vocal pedagogy, the latter of which has recognised the Voice Study Centre as a centre of excellence. I'd like to give a very warm welcome to Debbie Winter. Debbie, thank you so much for spending some time with me. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's a real honour. It's a pleasure. And for those listeners who might not know much about it yet, can you explain what the Voice Study Centre does and what it offers? So I suppose the best way to understand me really is uh, to think of me as a university cog. So I'm accredited by and fully integrated into the University of Wales, Trinity St David, And I run a programme, an MA in professional practice that specialises in voice pedagogy. So I deal with recruiting students, managing the curriculum, recruiting the lecturers, marking and assessing the work. So really the educational side is what I do, but the students are very much part of the University of Wales Trinity St David. So we we kind of work in partnership. So they enrol with them, they have access to all of their services and their library and um, they're very much thought of and they're certificated by them. So we're almost sort of a little a little cog in their enormous machine. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Um, and when you say that you were part of um, the curriculum there and building the curriculum, was there anything in particular that you noticed in training for teachers that was missing specifically that you really wanted to get out there for teachers to learn about? Yeah, so I suppose my evolution came about through me responding to a problem. Um, And I I was training, I basically was crossing over. So I was coming out of one profession. I was a law lecturer for the best part of 20 years. And then the link between the two was that I was a sort of semi-professional singer as well um, on the jazz scene. And I wanted to move from one profession to, to the other. I wanted to go into voice coaching. I was also experiencing vocal issues. I hadn't, I was very breathy, like a lot of jazz singers, not all of us, but some of us can be a bit on the breathy side. And I was very much in that camp. So I had sort of two things going on. I got my own vocal issues and also I was wanting more training and I was sort of hungry to learn put things right in my own voice and um, really be a proper proper coach, you know, and a, and a good one. I was very committed. And I just got blocked. I couldn't find any training. There's so much amazing training out there now. Um, but there was, that wasn't there when I was coming through. It just wasn't there. Um, and I was involved with Estill, which was, a, which, which, which um, was, you know, a, a great, it's a great system um, and I, I had some really positive experiences. But beyond that, there didn't seem to be anything. Um, and that was really sort of how I evolved. So I suppose I was responding to, to, to an issue that I was having. Um, and so I campaigned um, the, the Cardiff Metropolitan University. I was involved with them. And we got a, just one module accredited. Um, and that was sort of where it started. And then we evolved into a postgraduate certificate. Um, and that then I then administered, administered that and did a good job of it. 
Um, and that was how I sort of built up my metal, really, to show that um, that I could organise and, and do everything that was needed, which is so diverse. And then from there, I then moved to University of Wales, Trinity St David, which is such a mouthful. Um, and they they gave me full formal accreditation. But within that, it's you are accredited, but you you're very much part of their system. So you kind of become like a little little cog within their big sort of machine, if that makes sense. Mm. And you mentioned there that you first started out in law. Um, and I'm really interested to know if any of the things that you may have learned there have translated over into how you approach coaching in a way with your problem solving and, and that sort of thing. I suppose so. I suppose I'm, I probably survived this process because it's not easy. It's really not easy to be an external. Um, you have to have so many skill sets. And I suppose having a law degree has really helped me. I'm not afraid of enormous, I can pick through enormous complicated policies that most people would just not want to do. I can do the tedious work. <laughs> do you know what? It's been really great training to do very tedious work. <laughs> so some of what I do is literally picking through policies, picking through legislation, diagnosing, and all of that is is. I guess my systematic training has helped. I'm not afraid of, of, of that sort of work and I'm, I'm quite used to it, I suppose. So I suppose a lot of it's been useful, yes. <laughs> so whenever we have a boring thing that we need to uh, yeah. get to, we know who to come to. <laughs> it's like, oh my life, I mean, a policy document needs writing that's 30 pages long. And, you know, I just sort of do that kind of work. Um, and also the university processes are, are quite complex. So I know they all need to be, it's, it's, so it's, there's a lot to it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm unusual, I suppose, because I've got that law background. And um, but equally, I think it's probably stood me in good stead. Mm. And why might a teacher choose to go down the academic route? And, and how do you think that might help their practice and their, their career as a vocal coach? Well, I think at the time when I set this process up, I have quite an academic route and I, um, I, I was looking and hungry to read and research. I never, I didn't want to, I loved the still route, but I wanted to read all of their papers. Mm -hmm. um, and I love, you know, I like to read and poke about and I like that freedom and autonomy to control my own, my own learning. And I think that's what the uh, professional practice route does. It enables teachers to come in with their diverse backgrounds. And I host so many different teachers with such a range of backgrounds and professional um, roots. Um, and it enables you to build on those roots and fill the gaps that you need. Um, and I think that's the important thing. So the reason people would want to do it really is because they just want to develop their own practice and be a master of their own learning and be able to read and form autonomous opinions, be critical, have the safe space to be critical, to be able to pull apart um, different research studies, different methodologies and be critical of those um, within academic sort of reasoning, of course. Um, and and really to build their own pedagogical pathway. And what would be the requirements to get on the masters that you offer? Um, so it is a master's programme. Um, everything has to be uh, usual routes into university. I'm not any different. Um, so we do ask for students to have a degree. Um, however, we do also accept. So there are a lot of qualifications that are um, acceptable, such as um, some of the qualifications. So like if you've gone up and done the ABRSM routes, 
you can take those all the way up to master's level. So if you're hitting the level six marker, um, we accept those as well. Um, and we also have an inclusivity policy now. So I have a foundation course where I accept people on who have trained vocationally and missed the boat with the academic side of things. Um, and we work with those students to bring up their written skills and the, um, the fee for that comes off. So effectively, they don't really pay for it unless they pull out. That's the only time. Um, so it is definitely an inclusive um, sort of approach to bringing more people on. And I've had some incredible um, students, actually, who've gone on to get distinctions who didn't even. Uh, that's the most rewarding thing for me. Mm. And I think one of the things that's kept me going in this process, because it is not an easy process to be an external. I wouldn't I wouldn't wish it on anybody, really. <laughs> Having done it, you know, it's so much responsibility. Um, and what keeps me going through the, the, the hardness of it, because the regulation is hefty, and what keeps me going is just the students' work. It just mm. blows me away. I'm in awe, really. And those foundation students that have come on, that have missed the boat academically, I see them go on to do some really publishable work. We have a lot of students, not all of them, but a lot of them, go on to get published in really good journals and develop and they go off and they do they're developing their work and they're all got their own little space to stand in and I think that's what blows me away really mm. that's what keeps me going and yeah maintain it because it is a bit of a beast and to keep sort of feeding it really and keep it growing and keeping it safe um it's the student's work really that that does that Mm. And can you tell us about some of the alumni that you've had there and, and the projects that have been taken forward, if we're allowed to know? <laughs> yeah, so I've had some incredible students come onto the course. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed, I'm sure I am allowed to name them because they've often, they've often um, promoted me. So, you know, I've had, I've had some, some wonderful students. Um, uh, just thinking of a few, I had Juliet Russell, um, she was wonderful to work with and uh, her work has been um, extraordinary work with community choirs, um, lung health. Um, she's gone on to take that work into the British um, Lung Foundation and has worked alongside um, some great practitioners to even further it take. She's been involved in further research reports. Emily Fawkes, um set up the Singing for Health Network uh, and she She's had, she had definitely one piece published, um, but she managed to campaign and get funding for social prescribing. Um, and I think that's the, that's the thing is wherever I, it doesn't run on a tr traditional curriculum. And I think that's its magic because it's not like you come onto the course and we go and in module one, we're going to do about the larynx and in module two, we're going to do about resonance, which just doesn't work like that. So although we offer absolutely tons and tons of training and stimulus material, you choose as your practitioner where your needs are. And what we see is in a way we learn from the students. So what we see is the grassroots practice gaps and then we respond accordingly, um, which is part of why it's so challenging to run, because I'll have a student and suddenly I'll notice the students are, well, they're looking at um, performance anxiety. So then that brings me into, oh, my goodness, where are the therapeutic boundaries between a therapist and a coach? 
Um, and then let's see if we can bring in some experts. And that's been in the, a really innovative, a big area of innovation has been performance anxiety. Mm. The students working with clinical psychologist Dave Honkos, they've had research reports, he's supervised them, they've managed to come up with a with a with an approach, ACC, that remains within the teaching boundaries and doesn't stray over to the therapy. Um, and there's been some really brilliant work and some um, very positive results. Uh, so yes, it's just, it's never ending really. And I think it's being able to see what's in the cracks in a way. Mm. You know, we learn from the students whether, where all the, where things are new and emerging and where those boundaries are sort of flexing and or contracting as they as they may be in some cases yeah mm. am I just wittering now no no I'm really into it because <laughs> if you start me talking about students I'll just start blethering on I'll, I'll come back at three I'll, you'll still be coming <laughs> and I'll be like and then there was so and so and she did this and she did that so I do work with some remarkable um, coaches and then I work with new teachers too with that come on and just say well I don't I can't I don't I'm not as good and I'm not as developed as them and I feel a bit scared because they're all amazing and they're doing this incredible work and I I can't I can't do that you know well yes you can and ultimately we meet you where your practice is and everybody's got a right to develop their professional practice um, providing they remain within their scope of practice and within those ethical boundaries and that's where we so we spend so I've got a team of us that mentor so we're around we're available every day of the week um, there's somebody that students can come on speak to and then be mentored to find their thing mm. it's about finding your thing finding your thing <laughs> Yeah, I love yeah. it. And you mentioned performance anxiety there as an area that you've now expanded on. Have you noticed any other patterns emerging in in what people are really needing in in terms of more knowledge and uh, more exploration? Yes. Yeah, so I think probably what I'm seeing is that it's 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 a difficult one because it's a blurry boundary that could end up go I've had to be very very tight in fact I'm working on it consistently it's those boundaries between singing teaching and therapy and how to work within those areas um what I'm also seeing is an awful lot of uh soul searching and ethical explorations that are going on within the course and finding ways often within a multidisciplinary practice so mainly or all of the all of the uh, projects that have gone through, say for example, with Singing for Health, they've worked within a multidisciplinary context. So I've, with stroke, I had an incredibly mind-blowing one that Sophie Garner did, and I know she won't mind me mentioning her name because she's out there promoting her own work. Um, but she did a she did a, a brilliant project on stroke victims. But um, she worked within a multidisciplinary con- context the entire time. So she was with a uh, with a rehabilitation specialist. She was with nurses. She was within a clinic. And I think that's the thing. That's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing singing teachers wanting to push the boundaries, uh, but actually also becoming quite ethically aware and finding other ways. Um, I've got one girl that works, one student that works with um, lung health, and she's having an extraordinary experience at the moment where she's she's in her, so she goes into the clinic. So everybody, the nurses, the larynx, um, the uh, all of the specialists come in um, and all do the choir together, which is extraordinary. And then, so what happens during this is actually, it's, it's freeing up clinic time because within the choir, 
They're able to deal with things as they emerge, but they all work together, which is just absolutely extraordinary. She hasn't done a research project on it yet, but I am trying to convince her to do one. Um, so that's where that's where the innovation is. It's it's really being free to work with those issues, but really working with the university, getting ethical clearance, getting things through so they're done properly. Hmm. And I think that was what enabled um, Emily Fawkes to get her funding and to get the social um, prescribing work that she's got. It's because she worked with uh, MS patients within a clinical setting with, with, with a whole array of different specialists. And she was just one of a cog, I suppose. So she stayed within her boundary of being a singing leader, yeah. but with um, knowledge of the client base that she was working with. Um, so that's where the innovation is. That's where the challenges lie. Um, and, you know, it it's, can be quite scary, too, because, you know, get it wrong and, or you stray outside your ethical boundaries. Then, then where does that where does that leave you? And where does that leave us as a as a as a provider? So mm. it's fraught with challenges, but incredibly rewarding work. Mm. And how do you kind of get those opportunities to work in the multidisciplinary team is it a case of volunteering and just basically putting yourself out there and, and inquiring or is there more of a specialized route i think it, it can be a combination of both what i find what i have found is when students come onto the ma they can it gives them a reason it gives them a really rationale it gives them a really strong rationale i'm engaged in a research project so they might approach so say for example uh with parkinson's um uh, i work with a practitioner called elizabeth drawal who has had considerable experience with uh parkinson's she's just coming back on to do another research project even though she's got her ma um because she works she wants to work uh, with this particular client work so what she did she campaigned and worked with a charity so she took it to the charity the charity said oh my goodness yes 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 and then that helped her then so then that then gives them links then to work with other specialized practitioners within the field um and so it enables it what it does it enables them to carve out a really good rationale and a really carve out their ethical boundaries carve out their sort of practice boundaries i suppose um and it gets people on board people love to participate in research people love to come together as a community and if we can facilitate that through education then that's where the excitement is and that's what we're here for and that's what makes me keep going <laughs> And what sort of academic work is on the course? Um, are we looking at doing a dissertation? There's obviously the research side of things. So what could we expect? I mean, it, I, it's 33 month long programme and it is not easy. I have had, I think it is incredibly rewarding because you choose your own destiny. And if you, unless you choose, if, unless you don't go the right pathway, you shouldn't. I very rarely have students um, don't like what they're doing they love what they're doing because they've chosen it um so that's the first thing really um in terms of what to expect you know it's 33 month long program it's six micro projects there's a lot of support so we we are we give oh i don't know i would go as far as to say five times more support than your average academics degree um, and we have to because it's what calls called flip learning flip learning it happens when you're practice where, where you're uh 
student decides their pathway. Now you can't you can't just say to somebody, oh look, here's six research projects, off you go, because they they just wouldn't, they would get lost. So we have to have so much mentoring involved within that and so much um, care. Um, and also we have students that have come from sort of varied backgrounds as well. So there needs to be an awful, awful lot of sort of mentoring involved in that. Um, so what to expect it is hard work, but it's hard work within that caring environment mm. um you know you've got to come right up to level seven standards um also performers you know they make us work hard because they've been through they've been through the mill they've been had to be brilliant they have to be perfect they have to be so we get I, i've got you know i've got that kind of like hungry i've been knocked down 25 times and i've still got back up and i've got to be perfect and everything and i've got to be you know so they're driven and they want distinctions and they want the so they make us work <laughs> hard uh so it's not a two-way thing um and so yeah it is hard work I think partly because it is just by the fact that it's level seven because the students type of students that we that come onto this who are highly driven and um, they want to make the most of it um and that's what we're here to do uh, did I ever think that it would be when I very first when I very first got accredited with Cardiff Met, I worked with a brilliant guy called Peter, who was one of the one, most wonderful mentors I've ever had, really. He took me to one side and he said, you've no idea what you've done. You've no idea what you have done. Well, I got the gooseies. <laughs> <laughs> did you? Yeah, I did. And then, yeah. He, and then he said to me, and you owe these practitioners a duty to service them and to really get their work out there, because what you've done is you've just triggered a capacity for immense innovation, and you owe duty to this community of practitioners. And I just stood there looking at him, thinking, well, my God. And then when the work started to come in, I was just like, my word, yeah. I, I, I realised what I've done now. And I really hope, I really hope that I do serve. And I do view myself very much as in service with a view to really getting whatever these practitioners need, uh, particularly because it's so fast moving, the grassroots, just in acoustics, you know, there's stuff that's going on on the ground, you, with Bodo Mass's stuff that he's produced, um, there's stuff that, you know, they're all doing in the vocal pedagogy, little wing that is so technical and incredible, and who are the specialists, and they're just coming up, and they're just emerging, getting them onto the programme, getting them to deliver, you know, their knowledge, uh, so it's a lot to be done, yeah. Because you also offer little workshops, don't you, through the Voice um, Study Centre as well? Yes, so I open out, so we do open our doors. So I do two things. I try and, so anything that we do in terms of like, gaining academic skills and research skills, we tend to do for, for free. So I do open up my doors quite a lot um, just and have people pile on. I did. I'm always amazed at how well attended they are, actually. I did one on different types of literature review, which I would have thought was as dull as hell, and I had enormous amount of people show up for it. Uh, so that sort of stuff, we, we tend to uh, roll out for free. I've got one coming up with Dave Hunkos on using different quantitative designs, um, and I'll also open that up, the doors up for free on that. So, so quite a lot we do give away. Um, anything that is about sort of maybe developing skills, uh, we do we do open up where we can. And then I have the short um, courses, which we do as cheap as chips uh, for the two hours. Um, this is about 30 quid for, for two hours. And I have literally everybody, I try and represent the entire community. 
So anybody that's anybody, anyone's got anything that's interesting to say, anybody says to me, can you get so-and-so? Can you get Chavi Ballantyne? Can you get whatever? I'll get them on. Um, uh, and that's the practitioners as well as the academics, because it's not just about the academics. It's mm. also about the practitioners that are leading the field uh, as well. So mm. I hopefully, I try to represent both. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And forgive my um, dip in my knowledge here. Do you still uh, offer the PG cert as well? Yes. Yeah, so the MA, so in the in the UK, our MA gets divided into three for those that don't know. So we've got the MA, the PG dip, which is, so you've got 180 credits is the MA, 120 credits is the PG dip, 60 credits is the PG cert. So uh, they are all level seven. It's just that you're exiting at different points. So some people will just come on. So what we say to people, because it's a long old haul, 33 months, and you don't want to contract in unless you have to. So we often say to people, do the PG cert first and then it alter your status and then come on to the MA a little bit further in when you're absolutely sure. And sometimes we'll have students that will say, right, PG cert, I'm going to go and have a breather. <laughs> they might come back a couple of years later. They may not come back at all. They may go on to do other things. Um, and also they can take our 60 credits and bolt it onto another course if they want to so that happens sometimes as well mm. um, so yes so we do still offer the pg cert and we also um you can sign up for the ma great and for for teachers who might not be totally academic you said that you have the foundation course there um what would you advise for those people can they prepare in a particular way to come on to a course like the foundation course or even if they do have a degree and come on to the ma how can they prep for that academic work so i my advice is don't be frightened and don't ever assume that you're not academic um because there are all sorts of reasons why people don't pursue the academic route. And, that, and also people don't always have very positive education experiences. Mm. Um, so don't ever write yourself off is the first piece of advice. Second piece of advice, I would say, just give us a, give us a call um, and we work with you. So it's a formula, you know, level seven writing, master's writing is absolutely 100% a formula to a degree. Um, and it's about learning that formula and we teach you that formula. Um, so you can start just start reading and start I guess if you're really interested if you've got a fire in your belly um, that's the first thing if you've got a fire in your belly and a little spark then that's worth nurturing mm. um, um, and so give us a shout and give us a call I, I would say um, but just start reading start attending CPD uh, anywhere and most of my students are what you know they they're CPD junkies you know, they will go off and in the summer, I mean, I know in the summer, I know that because there was so much online, they were all signing up, doing Jeannie Levetri's somatic voice work, level one, level two, level three. Then they're doing Trinise Robinson's soul gospel stuff, whatever levels are involved with that. They go on off to, off to Lynn and they'll do stuff there. And I think that's the lovely thing, actually, is what I'm seeing is that they're going on and they're just hungry. They will just consume. They're not necessarily being loyal. You know, they're not kind of being, I'm not in this camp and I'm just going to stay here. They are going absolutely everywhere and everything is to serve their needs as a practitioner, which I think is brilliant. Mm. And one of your accredited modules is the Research Scholar Programme, which offers the opportunity for uh, graduates and alumni to engage in their own research projects. Um, 
And what would be your advice to a coach regarding starting out researching and getting their project off the ground? So if, um, so the research alumni, that was, yeah, so that's for the research scholar program is for those that already have got a master's. So it's kind of a midway point. Not everybody wants to go on a P, do a PhD, but they're really missing being master of their own learning, having access to the library, being able to read research articles. So that is for those who've got research methods under their belts and they can take on a research project and make a good job of it. Um, and they will just get access to the library, access to it. So, so that's what that's, that's what that is for. So for those experienced who've got a postgrad already, don't want to do a PhD, that's where that sits. Mm-hmm. Um, the other end is if you're a coach that's new and you want to start doing your own research and interested in getting published, unless you've gone through the ethics panel, you usually can't get a project pro- published. So a research project, you can't collect data willy-nilly. Um, uh, so you've got to be really careful when you're collecting data it has to be, um, you know, follow prescriptive rules and such like. So it really needs to go through an ethics panel. So usually a journal won't look at a piece of research unless it's been through a university. Um, mm. So I guess anybody that's seriously interested in doing research, they've got to make contact with a university. If it's not ourselves, then it needs to be another one. And there are obviously other programs around, of course. Mm. So one of the things that happens with you when you're on a degree, uh, when you're on MA, is you'll get two two lots of feedback on your essays, and it can feel quite savage. I mean, we try to be really gentle, but ultimately you get a huge amount of feedback on your assignment, which can feel, um, you know, it's what is it's raising is raising the bar all the time. So it's challenging because when you go to get published, you get absolutely, you know you'll get peer feedback that is like I've had students that go on and go oh my god I see what you mean with you've gone to get published and they get, they usually get published subject to changes and they'll they'll say to me oh my life I've got like three pages of changes to make and you know it's quite humbling so I suppose um yeah you can't do you can't be a lone wolf not really because you're constantly subject to um to criticism really once you're in the academic field and it needs to be that way it mm. needs to that way otherwise we end up with with stuff not being very accountable mm. Mm. and I'd love your opinion on on research papers um because they can be written in a way that may be off-putting to some vocal coaches who are the very people who really want to access that information and um, sometimes it can be a little dry <laughs> in the way it's written sometimes um how would you advise that a vocal coach kind of starts to get through that barrier of academic writing um, and it's try to understand that information in broken down bits. Um, yeah, how would, you, how would you advise kind of approaching research papers if you're not used to reading them? Yeah, I think particularly within voice, because we've been so heavily fused with the science in recent years. And of course, the scientists aren't necessarily, they're not looking necessarily to answer vocal coaches' problems. So sometimes you can, you know, you can spend a day of your life and it gets to the end and it says uh, there's no real conclusion. And you've just yeah. read through 75 diagrams, had your head blown off and there's no conclusion. You just think, well, what's the point of that? Um, so I completely understand that pain. Um, but I think, I think what, it's perseverance, I guess. You just get used to, you get used to, you get used to knowing, you can read the abstract 
So the abstract usually tells you whether or not it's of any use, this article. So that's you can get quite a lot from the abstract. So the abstract will will condense right down and tell you what the research results were are, and it will also tell you what the uh, com the commitment level that the researchers are prepared to make in terms of um, the ramifications of their research. So that's usually contained within the actual abstract itself. So that's a really good place to start. So don't be put off. Um, usually as well, what happens is you get pockets of research. So like Hickson in Breathing, he did an incredible amount of research. It was all pocketed together sort of between, I think he died in 2000, selfishly went and died. And then Breathing, <laughs> breathing has, uh, research has stopped really, or it's sort of nowhere near, you can see it's just like these huge plethora sort of around, um, you know, wealth of research around a particular time. And so, um, they usually band together. So usually what you can do is track back and then you can kind of build a little picture of a particular amount of body. So we know this. Mm. Um, and it's the same with registers, vocal registers. Mm. So you have flurries of research where you've got one lead researcher that does like five or six papers. So they're very active, maybe over a 10 year span. Um, and they make a real contribution. And I guess it's kind of accessing those contribution pockets, I suppose. Mm. that helps <laughs> and speaking of Hickson I can see it out of the corner of my eye I've got his respiratory yeah. function and speech the songbook which I'm yet to open Debbie if I'm honest with you it's been there for about three years and it? it's just enough that it's there <laughs> and I will dip into it at some point yeah he's not actually not I don't his writing's not that accessible he's quite um he's not all overly accessible um but he does crack little jokes he has he cracks little funnies in between. <laughs> well, you might have sold me then. <laughs> I'll have a go at it later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting. Hicks's work is definitely interesting on breathing, but mm. you know, and that's the other thing is you can go down. That's the challenge as well that students have is they go into the well. I'm gonna look at you. You, you say to yourself in when you're doing actor, I'll just look at. I'll just and the just when you say that fatal word just you'll end up in a rabbit hole where you're just looking at, you've got like, oh my goodness, there's 40 research reports to read mm -hmm. before I answer my just question. Because actually what I really want to do is that, but I'm looking at this. And so you can end up rabbit holing, but that's part of the joy, part of, part of the journey. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is part of the journey and part of the reason why I have paracetamol in the cupboard <laughs> for the yeah. research headaches. I know, and that that's the thing. It's, it, it is... I, I, I personally get a real academic high sometimes. I think it's something, I think it's a great moment when you're in that zone and you're in this high and everything's going really well. There's nothing quite like it. But then equally, you know, it can be tiring and people want to do other things, don't they? Like go in that, down the pub and have a yeah. <laughs> drink. Maybe <laughs> take the research paper. It might take make the research sense. paper, I know, I know, I know. Do you think there'll be a shift in the way research papers are written or do you think that's kind of just its character and it's our job as vocal coaches to maybe do what we used to do in school when we were landed with a Shakespeare piece and try to translate and say, right, here's the research paper and this is what we can take from it. And you can tell me if there's anyone who's doing that because I'll gladly, I'll gladly look for their work. Um, so where there is a translation of what we're actually reading. I think where there is a shift is in this emergence of the practitioner research. Um, partly that's fueled by
by this MA, but other uh, other master's programmes as well, but also by the existence of the Voice and Speech Review. So the Voice and Speech Review is Vasta's journal that's now on Scopus. It was uh, Rockford Sansom's sort of baby, an amazing job that man has done to, to give us this journal that is so rigorous um, and it's wonderfully constructed for the practitioner. So everything is written in a very... Um, accessible way it's first person writing but it's still very very academic Mm -hmm. Um, and that encourages array uh, an array of different um, articles ranging from sort of practice forum articles where people are just reporting personally on their own let through their own lens right the way through to much more rigorous peer review Um, and they also publish research reports but you can't get into the journal unless it's an accessible read and I think with practitioner researchers they're asking the questions that are relevant to voice coaches and so their research is very um, very very relevant and I think that's the biggest shift I think we're seeing um, more more vocal coaches participating in that research, asking relevant questions, and they're publishing in journals that are accessible and relevant. So that's the biggest shift, I think. Mm. And you mentioned one there. Have you got any other journals that you would recommend for us to delve into? Well, obviously, this journal of voice, um, they, they are more... I guess they're more leaning towards the science, but they are a science world journal and they obviously publish on all aspects of voice. Um, But they do, you know, they do publish some qualitative research reports. I have seen opinions in there as well. So it's Journal of Voice. Um, There's also um, the Journal of Interdisciplinary Voice Studies, I think it is. Um, I don't know if that's accessible online or not, though. I know a lot of the problems that people have is they've got barriers because they can't access it. Mm. that's a huge issue with Vasta you can become a Vasta member which I thoroughly recommend anybody to become a Vasta member um and you can if you know it's 100 quid I mean we can you can get all sorts of stuff there you can get um you can get paid you know you can apply to go to conferences and get some funding there's loads of opportunities loads of awards loads of it's an incredible organization um but you also get access to their to their journal as well so that enables you to participate actively or of course there's journal of singing and that's and that's an important one and you can you can access that through um you can access that through their site so you can sign up become a nats member and then you can access their journal of singing and they've got some amazing people people that write for them um some wonderful articles and what they have a lot of as well is um so like just one that's standing out top the top of my head is christian herbst did a range of articles for um vocal registers but he's what he's done he's also written for the journal of singing so he's taken his research and he's, he's even taken it right the way down to different exercises that really help to um, to work with vocal registers and that's that's published within um, the journal of singing so that's that's another another important journal and I think it's people got to participate and and, mm. and work I'm not it's not for everybody academic writing is not for everybody but it is for, for quite a few so mm. they're the two that I would recommend journal of singing become a Nats member uh, become a Vasta member um I know that the BVA were doing Choice of Voice. They did that amazing. They did that wonderful. Uh, so I guess they're probably cooking up their own plans too. So just just join AOTOS, join um, the BVA, join BAPAM and get involved because, uh, you know, variety is the life, isn't it? Mm. 
Yeah, it is. And Debbie, thank you so much for chatting with me today. And you have uh, a couple of cohorts coming up for your courses, one in May. So if you're listening before May 2022, then you can get in touch with the yes. Study Centre and one in October as well. Um, so where can people get in touch to kind of talk that through? So if they just type in Voice Study Centre, I'll come up on Google. I'm, I'm, I'll be there at the top um, and just make contact. So our uh, the office is somebody's in the office the whole time so we pick up emails and get back to you so just reach out to us and we'll come back to you I have got uh, open Q&A sessions as well that I run every other couple of weeks where you can drop in and meet me personally people like to chat to, to me directly you can book an appointment to chat to me directly as well I'm very very accessible and you can contact me directly on debbie at voicestudycenter.com and I always answer my emails thank you so much Debbie it's great to chat you're welcome thank you so much for having me So did that whet your appetite? Want more of where that came from? Then quench your thirst for knowledge by nerding out in our store where you can purchase a whole host of specialist educational videos for singing teachers, from building your business to fixing vocal faults. Or join our membership to get access to them all in your own geeky CPD library. Head over to www.basttraining.com forward slash store to get going. That's www.bastraining.com forward slash store.